Welcome back to the Non-Exited Novel Review. I'm author Matthew Glasgow. In this episode, we will discuss part one of chapter 10, the modern section focused on Connor Dempsey and friends. Part two will feature um, a focus on Thomas Holm and his days in Philadelphia. My intention with the chapter was to portray the dual stagnation and infinite movement of a person um, Connor Dempsey's age, which is roughly 18, a freshman in college. It is Thanksgiving morning, technically, and Connor and his friends have stayed up all night drinking. It is a moment of joy and celebration for Dempsey and his crew, but in a sense, a reminder to Dempsey that he is in danger of being left behind. He is in a sense, all three of his friends have moved out of his neighborhood appear to be forming closer bonds, at least Burke and McNamara, and have all of these wild tales to tell. Dempsey is the one who has stayed and feels he is in a state of arrested development. They are living new, independent lives, and he is still at home with his parents, essentially doing the same things except he is attending community college, not high school. However, he is also in a state of joy, partially from the alcohol, but also with a rare glimpse of true camaraderie. Those moments where uh, you are just clicking with the people around you and feel the true power of friends. He and his friends are young, and Dempsey sees the experience as the precursor for many more fun experiences to come. Prior to attending the keg party in the woods, four friends ascend the childhood playground A, an awning-like structure that gives them a higher vantage point of their neighborhood. In this, Connor's positive feelings coalesce. He feels the pride and history of his childhood and the bond he shares with the friends around him. As this section concludes, Dempsey and the four descend the A and make their way to the keg party in the woods. On their way over, Dempsey and hopefully the reader sees the neighborhood and history at ground level. Dempsey reflects on the out-of-place house in which a black man named Farmer lives and considers the old man and his property being invaded over the years by opportunists and ignorant, identical white people. Their ignorance transforms this man into some type of mythical villain uh, compared to Freddy Krueger, and Dempsey and the reader is meant to see the neighborhood as it really is, somewhat single-minded and judgmental. As Dempsey and friends enter the woods in the keg party, he sees only ugliness and stupidity. First, his former girlfriend who broke up with him because he, uh, she assumed uh, she believed he was a loser. Other girls he knows are there too, with his high school, Father Judge colored war paint for the upcoming Turkey Bowl. There is an intention to suggest cultural appropriation slash stereotype here. Um, connected to uh, part two of this chapter, where he sees Thomas Holmes' expectations of Native Americans and the reality. Dempsey then sees other acquaintances, one boldly chugging a portion of vodka and just as quickly vomiting it back up. The section then intentionally peters out. The anticipation of the Father Judge Turkey Bowl game is not met, as Dempsey and most others opt to just continue drinking in the parking lot, rather than enter the game. 
Dempsey then stumbles home, suggestively alone or too inebriated to notice, and the anticipation of the actual Thanksgiving meal is lost, as he sleeps straight through dinner. I wanted this section in a way to reflect myth versus reality, and imagine existence and actual consequences. I saw this through the excessive drinking of Dempsey and his friends. For a brief time, he and his friends reach incredible figurative and literal heights. He feels tremendous, a mix of effacing one's mind, while also finding a level of an intense and internal sense of self that may only happen occasionally. The neighborhood, his friends, and his prospects of life are all, as he states, good. However, his inability to articulate this perspective beyond good or fine is our indication that this myth, this spell, will soon wear off. His joy, once off the playground A, is ignorant, wasted, and underwhelming reality. Inspiration. Elements of part one of this chapter are certainly reflective of real life. Pog Playground was the playground across the street from my house growing up, as was a typical tradition of the turkey bowl and beginning festivities early in the morning. Even the man known as Farmer is very true to real life. Like I've said previously, I did try to blend real elements with fictional elements characters, the four friends, and ult- are ultimately fictional, though those closest to me could likely pick out a trait or background detail that might resemble a real person. I suppose this chapter, I wanted to contrast Thomas Holm and the founders of the city state's ambition to what it turned out to be. In the modern section, from one glance, I wanted it to appear endearing, young people having fun, celebrating each other, and feeling ready to conquer the world. At another glance, it is slovenly behavior, devoid of culture, ambition, and self-control. Freedom gone wild. Freedom as in filling yourself with pleasure and not really accomplishing anything. Craft and structure. An intentional element in this chapter is the somewhat nondescript, almost childish vocabulary and language influence. I utilize this to resemble Connor Dempsey's point of view, as in a stupor, but also in an almost euphoric state where language is somewhat lost. I tried to establish the myth with the neighborhood of the boy who fell from the smokestack of Pollock Elementary School, and also a farmer, the man turned almost into the boogeyman. I wanted to establish the pattern of people taking a basic reality or truth and continuing to add details until it is fictional, and into another form of myth that shapes the setting and world in which people are in. From there is the myth with Connor Dempsey and likely the other characters involved. That is this myth of permeance, and also this belief in an even better future. Dempsey is immersed in the moment with his friends, aided by alcohol, And there is the underlying assumption that these people will remain friends and their bond will just grow stronger over time, exemplified in the aspiration that Dempsey will eventually move to the city with his friends. They will all live together and eventually will be a big party. Um, Obviously, that doesn't quite work out for most people. They need to work, 
fall in love, have families. The great importance of hanging with your friends evaporates over time to the occasional meetings and weddings, fantasy football drafts, and funerals. I wanted to continue to emphasize the somewhat mundane. Verisimilitude, if we want to get highbrow and place it next to the historic and fantastic with Thomas Holmes segment. The hope is that in both ends there are similarities, but also contrasts. My belief was that in the comparison and contrast, there is truth. Chapter 10. It was Thanksgiving morning, and Dempsey, Burke, McNamara, and Sheridan sat under the Pollock Playground A, and each drank a 40 of Colt 45. The four had been up all night drinking in Burke's parents' garage, finally all reunited after nearly a semester away at college. All that is except Dempsey, who is still very much living in Holmesburg with his parents and attending community college. Burke's hair was nearly down to his shoulders, and he spent the evening talking about wild parties on Diamond Street, dodging the temple police on many occasions, and getting into a few spats right on Leah Chorus Walk. McNamara, who also attended Temple, would chime in when Burke was out of breath, and he too now smoked cigarettes. McNamara played baseball and basketball at Father Judge, and was for the most part a stiff when it came to partying, but with a few months with Burke, he was soon coming out of his shell. He was quiet but loyal, and never had a bad thing to say about anyone in the group. Sheridan, a lanky brunette with a close-cropped haircut, was studying to be a pharmacist at Penn. His intelligence astounded them all, and perhaps more astounding was that he chose to hang around them. His interests were always fleeting, as it would appear he would master one thing, get bored, and then move on to something else. He had played guitar and played a flawless stairway to heaven, and then seemed to never play again. He did jujitsu and choked out Doms, the toughest kid at Judge, then stopped that too. He seemed to be into Martin Scorsese films now, and talked incessantly about the film's score and use of rock music to illustrate deeper themes. After a night of drinking, they had all been feeling fairly inebriated. It was a liberating thing in a way, drinking in the early morning of, at Pollock, under the concrete pavilion with its two triangular arches that resembled the letter A. They drank here in high school, but the fear was missing curfew or punishment by parents for drinking. Now they were college students, and they felt untouchable. Still discreet enough, but knowing they were adults, though the drinking age dictated otherwise. If I can die for my country, I can drink, Burke would often repeat. Everyone would snicker at this comment, but they all believed it as well. It was a quarter after six, and the sun was beginning to come up. It was cold, but Dempsey felt good. Even though he had been up all night, he felt good. No, that was no way to describe it, but the alcohol pushed off most of his cognizance and he was fully in the wonderful moment, when there was no antagonism or rush of anger or intense love. Just being present with his three friends on a great holiday devoted to food, drinking football, and giving thanks. It was fairly trite, but he was at least thankful to have such a moment back. He had feared they would leave him, latch on to friends at college, be enwrapped in some type of political activism, or, heaven forbid, join a fraternity. They had remained relatively the same, and Dempsey was pleased. School at Community College had hardly been much of a departure from high school, and he still felt like an adolescent since he lived at home. Like he overslept graduation, and when he woke up, everyone was gone, and he was stuck at home in Holmesburg. Sheridan began to climb up the nearly vertical slope of the Pollock A, 
It was made of a hardy concrete and had layers of wax and grease, whatever the park's people could do to prevent kids from climbing to the top. Sheridan wiggled and gripped carefully, and with a lovely drunken abandon, pumped and pushed his way forward until he reached the summit. The crew hooted and hollered as he made the fantastic feat and looked up at him in, in admiration. His athleticism seemed to know no bounds. Come on up and live a little, Sheridan bellowed. You need to check out this view. Pollock Playground was built on the peak of a hill sandwiched between Welsh and Ashton roads, so looking out you were nearly eye level with the tops of the trees of Pennypack Park. Below the A was the recess area for Pollock Elementary with the three-story school building at the perimeter. Standing tall on the building was the school's smokestack, which had an ever-flashing red light at its top. The sun was beginning to peek out from behind the trees, and the cool breeze felt fine. You stay up there, Sheridan, and we'll head to the bridge, Burke retorted and began to walk away. Thanks for the 40, too. Burke walked all the way to the playground exit, paused for effect, and then turned around and sprinted for the A. In a flash, he was up. Dempsey and McNamara passed the 40s up and then climbed the A as well. He had been at the A more times than he could remember, but he never dared to climb it, like some of the old Pollock heads or members of the PLK. It was fairly inane, but he was finally up, and sarcastic as Sheridan may have been, he was right. The view was fantastic. He could almost see it all. Cars driving by on Ashton Road, an old man walking his Labrador, the desolate property known as Farmers, Winchester Swim Club, Home Circle, and 7-Eleven. The, the sunrise could have made him weep. Still feeling the buzz from the alcohol, his skin began to tingle and he lost himself in the fading blacks, grayish blues, and burning orange of the new day. It was all perfect and good in the moment. You ever hear the story of the kid in the smokestack, McNamara interrupted the serene moment. He climbed that thing on the top of the pollock and fell in. They couldn't find him for weeks until the smell started to travel across the whole neighborhood. Shit, Bert commented and sipped his 40. At eight, the four descended from the A, walked across the pollock baseball fields and onto the railroad tracks. The tracks reminded Dempsey of many carefree afternoons, walking with Sheridan, Burke, McNamara, or some of their early elementary school or high school friends on their way to the Bluegrass Mall to get new CDs at Tower Records or to get lunch at Taco Bell or the Pizza Buffet. They would head home, bellies bloated, each vowing to burn copies of their new CD for one another, and they would then head to Burke's or Sheridan's to play Grand Theft Auto or some football in the backyard. Standing on the tracks also brought vivid sniffs of memory. Don Watts chucking pebbles at pigeons nesting at the underpass, nicking one to the point that it fell prone on the gray and cobalt blue steps between the railroad planks, and Watts finding a brick in a mere moment before ending the maimed creature's life when Dempsey intervened and simply told him it was wrong. The crazy biker kid who rode as fast as he could down Ashton Road as the freighter train rolled by and breaking inches apart from impact, the brakes reverberating through the neighborhood. The girl who showed her breasts on the track to a group of boys for a measly $15. It all flooded back as he walked along with his friends toward the Home Avenue Bridge in Pennypack, where Tom Pallidus was having a pre-turkey bowl keg party. They passed Farmer's House, which was about five acres of land with a tiny dark house and four rusted-out Chevy trucks. When they were in about eighth grade, local boys would sneak onto Farmer's property. Some said they saw Farmer and he was an old black man who wore a black Stetson hat, 
which kids compared to Freddy Krueger. One story that circulated in the neighborhood was that a group of boys, troublemakers, a year older than Dempsey, egged Farmer's house one night and were subsequently stalked for the rest of the night by the old man and his old Chevy. The boys darted through Winchester Swim Club and Farmer was there. They scurried down Axe Factory Road and Farmer was there at the dead end in his old truck. They ran into the woods and swore they heard him following and sprinted all the way down Sally Avenue where the Pennypack Trail was bisected. The idea that Farmer was some sort of boogeyman made Dempsey laugh to himself, but there was this level of mystery in the solitary man living on this large but dilapidated stretch of land that sparked his curiosity. He imagined this man living in the peaceful, undeveloped countryside outside of central Philadelphia, and then suddenly all of these contractors and real estate moguls coming in and buying up every square inch around them, bulldozing trees, laying down asphalt and sidewalks, and building street after street of row homes, while he just sat on the porch of his simple farmhouse, observing it all, and probably thinking it has all gone to shit, as scores of white GIs with their uniform haircuts and three to five kids took over, and never even cared to learn his name and just said he was the farmer and their bratty grandkids now comparing him to a horror villain and egging his house for fun. The four continued on the tracks until they reached the Home Avenue Bridge and to Pallidus's keg party underneath. It seemed as if, as if everyone Dempsey had ever known was at the party, from his judge classmates to girls from St. Hubert's and Basil's, most girls with blue and red stripes on their face for judge. Dempsey's old girlfriend Ashley was there, and she looked even prettier than he remembered. They had dated junior and senior year until she broke his heart and ended it in May. She was going to Shippensburg for college, and she probably assumed he was just going to be a loser who lived at home and would never leave the Northeast. Her prediction was accurate so far, but it wouldn't be for long. Dempsey would be in nursing school and living downtown with Burke and McNamara, and having parties and inviting classmates from Temple, and she would be wrong about him, so wrong, and he would be making more money than she was with her psychology degree, and he would have a beautiful wife and kids in the big house in the suburbs. Still, that was all so far away, and right now, sipping his plastic cup of natural light was just about all he needed, and then Pallidus pulled out a bottle of vodka, and he took a swig and passed it to Towers, who went to Penn State, and Towers scoffed at the bottle, which had about four ounces of vodka remaining, and chugged it all down and let out this authoritative gasp, and then a moment later threw it all up, and then the party made their way down to Lincoln Stadium for the game, and no one even went inside to watch the game but just continued to drink in the parking lot, and Dempsey saw even more people and then stumbled home and passed out on the couch and slept right through Thanksgiving dinner. That will conclude part one of chapter 10. In the next episode, we'll review part two, the segment of Thomas Holm and his exploration in the new world. Thank you for listening and your continued support. Make sure to stay updated on social media and the links provided. Until next time.